Hi, this is Mark Leonard. I'm director of ECFR, and together with my colleague Yanka Ertl, I want to welcome you once again to Insight China, the podcast that we hope will leave you smarter about what China's thinkers think. to tap into the discussions that Chinese intellectuals are having. In-person exchanges have become a lot rarer and the space for debate has been shrinking for a number of years now. We want to make an attempt at changing that and are going to engage in a conversation with some of the best Chinese academics, researchers, writers or journalists on the entire range of topics in the Chinese internal debates that matter most to Europeans. And today we are joined by Professor Pan Chengxin, who's an Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Macau and an Adjunct Associate Professor at the University of Technology in Sydney. His research interests include critical international relations theory, world politics, and representing and theorizing China's rise. We're particularly keen on talking to him about his research in quantum relational theory, which is a totally different way of thinking about international relations and one which intersects and, and links cutting edge science with ancient Chinese thought. Um, Professor Pan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me. So why don't we start with, with some of the basic questions about how you're thinking about the world? And maybe we should start with this whole idea of of what some call the relational turn in international relations. What is a relational theory of power and of, of international relations? Yeah, that's a great question. The relational turn or the relational theories of IR have been around for quite a while now. The relational theory itself is in contrast to the traditional uh, Newtonian ontology of things because the mainstream IR theories have been mostly based on the ontology of things. So we see individual states, uh, individual actors uh, in the world, so they interact with each other. But from a relational perspective, actually, relations are more uh, ontologically fundamental. So some even go as far as uh, saying relations come first, things come second, uh, although there are differences within the relational turn. Um, in regard to the uh, relations between relations and things. So uh, I will not go to, into detail um, about that. Uh, but overall, yeah, the argument is that no things can exist uh, without prior relations or without uh, continuing relations uh, to sustain the things. So, that's... so that, that might be quite abstract for some of our viewers, but yes. I think essentially in very kind of plain man's language, what you're saying is that in, traditionally when we think about international relations, we look at states and what they're doing and how much power they have and how big their armies are and how much money they have. We look much less at the links between those states. But actually, if you have a relational theory, it's the relationships, how many relations each country has, what kind of relationships they have. 
maybe even more important in terms of understanding their power and how they relate to each other than just counting how many bombs they have and how much money they have in their in their foreign reserves and how many factories they have making weapons etc is that a, a fair vulgarization of what you <laughs> what you were saying yeah i think this is a very important part of the uh, relational argument i think uh, you mentioned about the yeah the links the networks which engulf individual actors states etc this yeah can be seen as part of the relational uh, approach. Also, the relational, as I mentioned, the relational turn is made up of a large body of literature. Some relational uh, scholars think more along the line of some internal relations. Well, the observable, sometimes measurable relations between actors such as states, they are seen as external relations. By internal relations, uh, we mean the relations are already embedded in the entities, the actors, in the units we, we, we see as apparently independent or separate. But in fact, for example, each individual, we can see uh, their relationship with another person, whether it's hostile or friendly, that kind of uh, external relationship. But uh, the internal relationship is that the, for example, uh, their parents' uh, relationship is embedded in that person, and also the the thought of that person uh, is entangled with the uh, the beliefs, the cultures, the religions, etc., of the uh, whole society. So that kind of a relationship very often is harder to observe, to measure. So again, if we want to be a bit more concrete, you're saying that, for example, if you're Japan, or if you want to take a country like Japan, yeah. that Japan's relationships with China can't just be explained by part of being Japanese is having a complicated relationship with China that goes on for a century. That's constitutive in some ways of Japanese identity. And equally, having a different kind of relationship with the US, this sort of alliance-like relationship which Japan has with the US, has also become part of its identity. So in other words, you can't say there is Japan and then it has relations with the US and China. In fact, you can't understand what it is to be Japanese without looking at these kind of quite complicated relationships which are built up over time and which then feed back into, into the identity. Yeah, that's exactly... One of the interesting things about relational theory is that some people have argued that it's particularly Asian way of looking at the world. And they make a lot of links with traditional Chinese thinking and culture. And they go back to, to Confucius and they look at the importance of concepts like Guangxi in the Chinese imagination. You come at it from quite a different angle, but maybe we can start with that. And, and also, you know, whether you think that that is true, that from, a, you know, in terms of how Asian societies have developed, the idea of relationships is more important in terms of how people see themselves and their future and how they define things than maybe the stereotype is that the West is much more individualistic and is much less focused on these ties, whether it's of kinship or other kinds of links which people have. Mm, yeah, there are certainly there is certain cultural differences uh, between the Asian traditions and uh, Western traditions. Uh, you you mentioned the Guanxi concept, for example, in China, and the people tend yeah tend to have yeah put a lot of emphasis on maintaining Guanxi, and uh, 
reflecting the importance of Guanxi for longer term uh, interaction uh, because sometimes they argue, they think that achieving individual or concrete results uh, is less important than maintaining long standing relationship because so long as the relationship is uh, maintained, differences and uh, objectives. Yeah, it could be realized, could be achieved uh, through that kind of a relationship uh, instead of just aiming for uh, one-off outcome. Um, so, yeah, these kind of cultural differences um, seems to be there, but yeah, we should not exaggerate the differences between the so-called East and the West because increasingly, yeah, I, the East and the West, they, they are also constructed like in relation to each other. So they, they are part of the, the, the whole, if you like, of, of the whole world. But some people have argued that concepts like the Belt and Road Initiative and things like that are somehow a kind of concrete policy expression of, of this idea of relational thinking that, you know, part of the idea of the Belt and Road Initiative is, is literally about linking China to, you know, over 65 countries around the world through roads and railways and pipelines, uh, as well as all sorts of kind of digital uh, links. And that one of the reasons why China is thinking so much in those terms is because it resonates with this sort of much more relational way of thinking about the world. It certainly, yeah, uh, can be seen as kind of an embodiment of this more relational approach to international relations, uh, especially, yeah, the, uh, the various links, the, the infrastructure, uh, the port, the railway, um, and uh, highways, uh, etc. They, uh, they are literally uh, links connecting countries, different places, different uh, trading ports together. Uh, I think that's yeah, that's a clear illustration of the yeah of that kind of foreign policy thinking, if you like, through the yeah, Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, but I think this is not unique to China. I think yeah, over over the millennia, if you like, countries, different cultures, they've been treating with each other. And they have yeah maintained uh, the the Silk Road, for example, the yeah, the connections uh, through culture, through religion, uh, and through trade. So yeah, this is a continuation of this kind of uh, the global connection phenomenon, which is not just unique to to the modern period, but it has been going on since the beginning, if you like. So. Other relational scholars have, have spent a lot of time thinking about what Confucianism tells us about these sorts of relationships that China might want to, to have with other countries and argues that kind of power is both contained in how many relationships you have, but also the nature of the relationships. And, and there are lots of sort of quite hierarchical ideas embedded in Confucian thinking. But I think maybe what's most interesting about your work is, is that you push the relational thing into a completely different domain and you come at it from a totally different angle which is from sort of cutting edge technologies you take a lot of ideas from um from quantum quantum physics can you explain a bit what role quantum physics plays in your work how you became interested in quantum physics as a way of, of understanding um, international relations as I see it, quantum physics, obviously, yeah, this is something that I'm, I'm not an expert uh, on. And yeah, my knowledge about physics uh, probably has stayed at the high school level. But I think the attraction of quantum theory, quantum physics, uh, is mainly in its conceptual contributions to 
how we think about the world, uh, because although quantum physics uh, is concerned with, uh, in, at least initially, with the microscopic world, the, the subatomic uh, world, uh, very tiny, tiny particles, but its implications can, yeah, are not limited to the uh, microscopic world, uh, because uh, in the everyday life, uh, we can see the similar phenomenon which can be understood through a quantum perspective, such as the entanglement, such as uh, complementarity, uh, even uh, superposition, the duality of wave, particle, uh, of light, and the measurement problem. So all sorts of quantum concepts are actually quite useful to uh, understanding our uh, social world. So yeah, this is basically how I was drawn to the to quantum theory. Uh, but in particular, my my interest uh, is driven by my search for a suitable framework in order to understand China's rise. Because I wrote a book, uh, basically, which is critical of the mainstream AR theories understanding of China. The next logical question would be if yeah the mainstream AR theories are limited or inadequate. What's my alternative? So. This basically led me to, um, to quantum theory. Can you maybe just very briefly tell us why you think mainstream international relations didn't manage to explain China's rise? The mainstream air theories, as we already touched on, are based on the ontology of things. They see each individual country as just a separate unit. And so China is no exception. They see China as, for example, uh, a major power, a rising power. As a result, some look at China as a threat. Others think that China may represent more of an opportunity. Uh, but this kind of either threat or opportunity paradigm, in my view, is inadequate in understanding the complexities of China because from my perspective, China is never purely China. Uh, it is an embodiment of complex relationship in the world. So as a result, uh, if we see China purely through those kind of either or lenses, and we basically misread China uh, for what it really is. Okay. You just laid out a whole lot of quite interesting, intriguing concepts which you took from quantum physics, which you think helps us explain international relations. Before we do that, for people who are not physicists, can you explain firstly and very, very, very briefly, what is quantum physics? I mean, it's obviously, as you were saying, it's kind of sub-atomic level that, that it works, but what makes it different from the kind of traditional ways that we think about physics working and the relationships between things? Uh, it's a challenging question. I'll try my best. Yeah, the way we look at the world uh, has been really heavily influenced by physics, especially the Newtonian physics, the classical physics, which look at uh, the world as made up of individual separate objects, and the objects can be divided further into small objects uh, until uh, we reach this kind of a elementary level of objects. Uh, you may call it particles. Quantum physicists, they keep looking uh, inside of the small particles. And the closer they look, when the scale is getting smaller and smaller, they began to find that the 
uh, classical Newtonian physics principles no longer apply because, for example, they, they say 99.999% of the atoms, for example, the, is empty. And then they cannot really measure the, the position and the velocity of the atom or, or electron at the same time. This kind of uncertainty principle, which is also in contradiction to the Newtonian way of looking and measuring the world. So that's how quantum physics began to, to differentiate itself from the classical physics fundamental ways, because they began to think that actually there is no things anymore at that level. And what we have uh, is just potentials of things which may be realized under certain conditions. And this kind of conditions may also involve uh, us, involve observers uh, when they want to measure them. Because when you measure so-called things at that uh, level, uh, any measurement would inevitably interfere with uh, the operation of those things. So in the end, we are all entangled as a whole. And so that uh, it's difficult to really say we are looking at something which is objective, is the independently existing, that kind of principle no longer applies. So that's one of your most, one of the fundamental ideas, this idea of entanglement. In classical international relations, people think about states as being kind of separate from each other. There's a clear difference between domestic policy and foreign policy. And what you're saying is that to understand the world, we need to start from the basis that there are no such, that, you know, that no man is an island, <laughs> that ultimately it's that everyone's kind of linked up and are entangled with each other. How does that play into some of the arguments we're having at the moment about decoupling, which seems to be going in the opposite direction, where, or, you know, Trump wanting to build walls? And I mean, at the moment, there is definitely a, a kind of move of seeing interdependence as something which is, is problematic, which creates vulnerabilities. And in fact, it's the relationships which seem to be the most scary to many people at the moment. Yeah, indeed. Uh, the world seems to have going uh, the other way, yeah, in comparison to just uh, maybe one or two decades ago. Previously, it was uh, all about globalization, about the interdependence, but now uh, it's about uh, decoupling, uh, about building this kind of barriers to uh, prevent uh, technology from uh, diffusing into uh, yeah, possible enemy uh, countries. I think the yeah, this kind of move reflects exactly the kind of uh, traditional way of thinking about international relations, uh, which think that states are just self-contained. They have their own power, their own interests. So in order to protect those interests, you sometimes you want to build walls and uh, cut links so that yeah, you think that you'll be more secure. You, you, your survival would be more guaranteed. But yeah, from a quantum perspective, from a relational perspective as well, we think that actually this kind of height can never be cut. Uh, you could cut uh, some external links. Uh, you could make uh, things more difficult for people to communicate, to uh, exchange views, uh, to travel to different places. Uh, that's, yeah, that's what, what, what's happening already. But the fundamental links will always be there. Because without the, those kind of fundamental links, no state could survive, survive for yeah, uh, even a few months. Uh, so sometimes, yeah, we, we take those links for granted. 
we cannot see the, their existence. Uh, but uh, once those kind of uh, links uh, are restricted, uh, are really uh, theoretically cut off, uh, I think we, uh, as individuals and as states, we cannot really survive. One of the interesting things about China, though, is that it has, I think, been much more conscious about those links than many other and much more careful of managing them than most other countries in the world. So at least since the beginning of, well, for over a, over a century or China has been thinking about how it could get Western technology and benefit from ideas from other places, but at the same time has been quite concerned to preserve the essence of Chinese culture and to stop China being overwhelmed by it. And as a result, through different phases in Chinese history, you've had attempts to both build links and to benefit from technology and ideas, but at the same time to, to control it. During the opening and reform era, it's been a very interesting thing. And on the one hand, China become the workshop of the world and has been completely embedded in the economies of every other country in the world. But at the same time, it's been very careful to restrict certain types of, uh, of contact, whether it's through capital controls or stopping certain types of investment coming in or stopping certain types of com uh, companies in. Do you think that that approach is partly inspired by this kind of relational way of thinking? Yeah, uh, you mentioned uh, throughout history, China's approach to uh, the so-called outside world uh, have been uh, varied, uh, have uh, been, they have seen ups and downs. Uh, sometimes China was more open, more inclusive, more cosmopolitan, uh, but other times China seemed to be more um, retreating into its own sphere, being more isolationist. Uh, we, we, we know uh, the Silk Road, yeah, that, 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 that's one example of China's openness, uh, and also the, uh, the voyages of Zheng He, that, that's another example. But also you had uh, in, in the later Ming Dynasty and uh, certainly uh, the Qing Dynasty, Chinese rulers became more inward-looking, and they were yeah, more, uh, more suspicious of the foreigners. And sometimes, yeah, I guess uh, partly because they could afford to be isolated, uh, because China was uh, yeah, quite uh, developed uh, in comparison to their uh, contemporary partners, counterparts. So, yeah, they thought that they could manage their own affairs uh, without getting into contact with other countries. But uh, China also paid the price for that kind of uh, isolationism, as we all know. Yeah, the forced opening of China's uh, trading ports, uh, the, the collapse of China's uh, tributary system uh, in the Qing era. So, I think, yeah, in the contemporary period, Chinese leaders learned some of the lessons of the, the closed-door policy. Uh, so, yeah, from the late uh, 1970s, China has uh, implemented this uh, opening up and the reform policy, uh, which uh, has contributed greatly to the uh, so-called rise of China. So, yeah, the, the, yeah, the prosperity of China, the, the growing strength of China uh, could, uh, in a large part, be understood through this kind of uh, relationship with the outside world. So, yeah, this uh, indeed reflects uh, China's troubled different approaches to, to the rest of the world.
also, yeah, the the approach also reflect, yeah, this kind of a relationship they experienced with the outside world. Sometimes, if they, yeah, experience with the outside world was not significant or was unpleasant, if you like, they would uh, try to limit that kind of a relationship. For example, by building the Great Wall uh, to limit the contact uh, between the nomad people uh, to the north and uh, with China proper. One of the intriguing ideas that you've written extensively about is the idea of quantum holography. Can you explain in in very simple terms what quantum holography is? What does it mean and why is it helpful? The term uh, quantum holography is a kind of relational perspective. And uh, the term holography is also a concept about the relationship between the whole and the parts. We know the, this kind of relationship has been debated in philosophy for ages. There is this kind of reductionist view of the relationship. For example, the reductionism thinks that uh, the whole can be reduced to parts. So we can understand the whole by unpacking the whole and looking at the individual parts. However, holism thinks that uh, the whole cannot be reduced to parts. Uh, the whole is bigger or greater than the sum of the parts. Quantum holography basically agrees with holism, but uh, it goes one step further uh, because, uh, well, it agrees with the the whole is uh, greater than the parts, but at the same time, uh, it argues that the parts actually are not just parts. The parts are smaller versions of the whole. Uh, So within each uh, part, you can see the traces, uh, the characteristics of the whole. So this is basically a more organic and a more systemic approach to uh, to the world because uh, we yeah we can use examples in in our body for example uh, medical uh, practitioners uh, could reproduce uh, a whole creature a whole animal based on the cell yeah because the cell uh, contains the whole information uh, of the whole of the whole species uh, the whole body uh, also we are in we are familiar with the many seeds many fruits actually within the seed you have the information of the whole plant on a single cell uh, because also, of yeah, the this, DNA uh, seems to be uh, not related to quantum uh, but yeah the basic idea is about the this kind of a holography uh, which is a technology of creating um, this kind of 3D image through uh, interfere, uh, interference patterns, through diffraction. And yeah, physicists think that this kind of interference patterns and um, diffraction are examples of the quantum uh, superposition. So the quantum superposition phenomenon is not just unique to this microscopic world, uh, but also it can be experienced in our yeah, classical world, if you like. So what does superposition mean? The superposition means different things uh, can be superimposed uh, onto the same thing. So that oh. yeah, this one thing is no longer just one thing. It's, it's actually... Uh, in so many different uh, positions or different states. Uh, just like yeah, in the famous uh, Schrodinger's cat, uh, the cat can be both alive and dead. So the two states of aliveness and uh, death is actually superposed uh, in the cat. So how does that translate into international relations? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. To put it yeah, through this uh, quantum holographical terms, uh, basically, the part 
is both a part and a whole. So the part and the whole are superposed in one body. So yeah, through this kind of perspective, when we see one particular thing, uh, we should not just uh, see the thing in itself, but also see the relationships, see the holes that is contained in that thing. So in this sense, yeah, it is a kind of a superpositional phenomenon, uh, which uh, is happening everywhere. So in that sense, yeah, when we talk about country, we should not just see itself as a unit. We should also see itself, uh, that kind of state as fundamentally relational. So you shouldn't just think about China in the world, but you should think about how the world comes into China through its relationship and, and, and vice versa. When we were speaking uh, last time, you told me that this kind of quantum holographic way is very compatible with a lot of traditional Chinese religions and how a lot of Western physicists have been have been quite impressed by um, by Eastern religions and, and holistic thinking. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, certainly. Uh, yeah, we tend to think that physics, modern science, uh, has little to do with religion or with philosophy, certainly with Eastern religion. But uh, the interesting thing is that uh, philosophy and the physics, uh, they have never been separated. And uh, the physicists uh, very often use philosophies to guide their exploration of the physical world. And because, yeah, that's fundamental kind of a metaphysical uh, assumptions, very often um, lay the foundation for them to uh, raise questions about the world. In the case of the quantum physics and uh, the Eastern ways of thinking uh, in China, in India, etc. Yes, scholars such as Niels Bohr and David Bohm, they uh, have maintained yeah, close ties to, to certain thinkers uh, in the East, and uh, they certainly have read uh, certain Eastern uh, texts, such as Tao Te Ching. So, yeah, this is kind of a cross-fertilization uh, in culture, in thinking, certainly has played a role in, in the emergence or in the development of uh, modern science, which uh, may be surprising to some people. So we're coming up to the end of our time. It's been a really interesting conversation, but I think it might be quite uh, sort of mind-blowing for some people with all of this physics. Um, so maybe we could just end by it with some of the sort of practical impacts. I mean, I don't know whether we could just think through, if you if you look at the world through your eyes and through these concepts, how would you think differently about, say, either you know China's relationship with the US or China's relationship with the EU or how to deal with, with a global challenge like climate change? What do you think the main kind of differences would be if you kind of look at the world through your quantum holographic lens? I think in general, when we look at US and China, there are already relationships. So when we say yeah, U.S.-China relations, we assume that U.S. and China are separate. Uh, they have nothing to do with each other, and they are just self-contained units. But uh, from a quantum holographic perspective, because uh, each country, whether it's China, the United States, or Japan, or Australia, uh, they are always already uh, a smaller version of the whole. By that, we, uh, we could mean uh, the region, uh, the whole world, and also in 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 terms of the 
the time uh, axis, the whole can also be yeah, history to the present and even to the future. So in that sense, all states, all actors are already entangled uh, with the same kind of holes. And so uh, if we adopt this perspective, uh, our view of their relationship began to change. They are no longer um, separate from the beginning, then have some kind of a relationship of contact or competition or whatever. Actually, uh, their very existence depends on their relationship with the whole, which necessarily would uh, include uh, the other parts, uh, the other states. So as a result, it's just like in the Chinese term, when they say uh, everyone in the in the four seas uh, are brothers and sisters. So when you uh, look at the world through these kind of perspectives, the relationship is no longer based on the self and other dichotomy, based on this pure power politics in the so-called state of nature, for example. Uh, so yeah, that's the starting point. Uh, I understand that uh, this seems to be a yeah, far-fetched from contemporary reality of power politics. That doesn't mean that, uh, yeah, the current power politics uh, struggle is a particular way of looking at the world. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's the this kind of thinking in uh, practice. If we could practice international relations uh, from a different way, uh, we could create a world which is more in line with the what I call the original holographical entanglement. Uh, if yeah, there's a match between uh, the objective world and uh, the way we understand that world, I think uh, the world would be more amenable to uh, cooperation. Many challenges uh, would be able to be dealt with through more cooperative uh, way. But I think your your theory also explains why competition is increasingly taking place through the manipulation of relationships as well, no? Yeah, I think the, when we see the world, yes, yeah, through this kind of a unit-based or uh, uh, this non-relational terms, uh, yeah, we we think that, yeah, your interest has nothing to do with my interest. Uh, even yeah, our interests are zero-sum. And uh, that would encourage this kind of a more self-interested, um, more competitive and confrontational uh, way of um, dealing with each other. So, yeah, that is, yeah, this is a reflection of how we understand the world. So, in that sense, I think a conceptual change to mainstream uh, IR theory uh, it's not some kind of abstract uh, intellectual exercise. It's actually closely linked to international practice. Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of the time that, that we have. Can I maybe just ask you one last question, which is if people want to find out more about this different way of thinking about the world, what are the places that they could should go to, to to look for deeper explanations about what we've been talking about? I think, yeah, firstly, we need to keep our mind open. Uh, we should not limit our knowledge uh, of interests uh, through this kind of established uh, disciplinary boundaries uh, because those kind of boundaries are ultimately artificially made uh, because in the end, knowledge is also interconnected. Uh, so on that sense, uh, in that sense, I think uh, we need to be yeah, absorbing 
more from the whole body of literature, knowledge, um, uh, where, yeah, to basically find wherever you find interesting, uh, you, you can listen to uh, whoever you think is uh, fascinating, is uh, sort of provoking. Uh, I think, yeah, in, in principle, that's, uh, that's the way I am trying to do. But uh, yeah, if people are interested in quantum physics and how quantum theory could be relevant to international relations, I would recommend scholars such as Alexander Wendt. Uh, he has been uh, pioneering this uh, quantum turn in IR. Uh, so his book, uh, Quantum Mind and the Social Science, uh, and uh, other publications could be a, a good starting point. Okay, and we'll also put up some, some links to your uh, publications on our website. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to the Insight China podcast. If you haven't, we'd encourage you to subscribe on whatever platform you've downloaded this episode from. And while you're there, feel free to give us a positive rating and a five-star review as that helps to bring other people to the pod. But for now, from Pan Changshin and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researchers of this podcast were Alicia Bahulska and Sonia Lee, and the editor of this episode is Marlena Hebel.